Hey friends, producer John Wright here. When I was making the documentary, Leaving My Father's Faith, uh, it was after Bart Campolo stopped believing in God a few years ago. I sat down with Bart and his famous Christian father, Tony Campolo, for eight sessions in front of the cameras. I mean, we were rolling for hours and hours, each day for a few days in a row. And although many of you have now watched that film, the film itself, on Amazon or online, nobody except me has ever heard the actual long-form conversations in their entirety. And so I thought it would be cool to share them, finally, uh, with supporters of Humanize Me on Patreon. And so we're going to do that. Patrons of this podcast will get one new session a week from that conversation for eight weeks in a row between the two Campolos, father and son, in dialogue, talking about faith, doubt, the nature of belief, the Bible, the basis of morality, and lots of other stuff. These are stimulating conversations. They're fun to listen to. They're full of insight about the differences between the way the two men think. I think you'll love them. Uh, there's a link in the show notes on today's episode where you'll find this week's session, or you can go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Thanks. Now let's get on to today's episode. Listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I have been out there in the world the last few weeks. I was down in North Carolina talking to the free thinkers. I was down in Nashville talking to the NanoCon folks. I was up in Wisconsin talking to the Free Thought Festival. And, uh, yeah, while I was up in Wisconsin, I got to see Hammond Meta, my old buddy and Ryan Bell, another old buddy. And, uh, down at NanoCon, I saw Anthony Magna Bosco, uh, podcast buddy. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I saw people that were guests on the shows, but better than that, I saw so many people who were listeners. I, I, I got to I got to press the flesh and hug people who I've only gotten emails from or I've only heard about because they were Patreon supporters. And there they were in the flesh showing up to say, hey, and uh, to talk about kind of what the conversation that we're always having on this show means to them and how it's been helpful. And I, it, I, I just got to tell you, I, there's nothing more encouraging. I, I, got, I, I hope that some more people invite me on speaking engagements, um, partly because it's a way of getting new people exposed to this conversation and bringing them into this, um, but mainly because it gets me a chance to meet and greet and hang out with and be with people who are part of this community. So... Yeah, if you if, if 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 there's an event you're doing that you could use a good old humanist speaker type, like you should call me up or write me or somehow reach out, smoke signals, let me know. I'm into it. Um, you know, and as I was, was talking to people about the conversations that we're having, I was thinking about the stuff John and I have lined up for the next few months. And basically for the next few months, we're gonna be focusing on 
having conversations about creating better relationships. And you might say, well, that's what the show is always about. But I feel like in some ways we might've been losing the thread a little bit, you know, bringing in conversations and, and, and guests and questions that were interesting. But I, you know, I started thinking like, are we, are we staying on point? And what is the point? And what's the focus? And what's this show about? And the more we thought about it, the more we thought, look, it's, it's about making the most of this life primarily by building better relationships. And so for the next few months, we're going to have guest episodes and Q and A episodes that are going to be on that theme starting today. And uh, I'm going to tell you about today in just a, a minute, but I do want to tell you one thing. The people that sponsor this show through Patreon, I love you. And the people that don't sponsor this show through Patreon, I love you too. But I realized as I was talking to people out there that a lot of people, because they're not sponsors or supporters of the show, they don't even go over to Patreon and they don't know that there's a whole bunch of content there. But for the next eight weeks, every week, John tells me, that he's gonna be posting a new audio conversation between me and my dad. Um, and these long form dialogues around, you know, the nature of belief, the Bible, the basis of morality, miracles, homosexuality, humanism, the afterlife, science, abortion, religious experiences, all that stuff. My dad and I had like hours and hours and hours of conversation when we were recording um, the conversations that were used in John's film, Leaving My Father's Faith, which has been out there for a while. And if you haven't seen it, you ought to check it out on Amazon. It's, it's a neat, neat documentary. I didn't make it, but I really like it. But John went back over those dialogues recently and he said, you know, I got eight conversations that I think are worth sharing. And so we're not going to put them up on the, on the main podcast, but they're going to be up there on Patreon. So if you're into it, you should go over there. And I think you got to support, I think you got to be a supporter to get there, but you know, you can be a supporter at a very reasonable rate. I, I think it, you can go down as low as a buck a month. And uh, I just love anybody who puts any skin in the game, anybody who puts any, you know, puts their money where their mouth is and says, I like that podcast and just wants to be, you know, wants to get a little piece of it. So now nah, a buck a month is fine with me. Um, and if you can do more, do more because it, it enables us to do more, but we love y'all. And so there's that pot, there, there's that content. It's going to be out there on Patreon. Um, I think it's, I think it's, it's probably going to be starting this week. All right. So there's that now today I'm having a conversation with, and I got to tell you, this is le legitimately one of my sort of intellectual and relational heroes, Dr. Marty Klein. And, and, and if you haven't heard me talk about Marty Klein um, as much, it, it, it's because we haven't gotten the conversation, it's because we haven't been talking enough about sex. Because whenever I talk about sex, I talk about Marty Klein, because Marty Klein is, a, you know, he is an expert. Uh, and what I mean by that is he's a certified sex therapist. He has been for over 35 years working in Palo Alto, California. And he's written lots of great books, including the book that I find to be one of the most helpful. It's called, I don't, I don't dig the title that much, but I understand why it's the title. It's called His Porn, Her Pain, Confronting America's Porn Panic with Honest Talk About Sex. And, and you might say, well, wait a second, his porn, her pain. What about his pain? What about her porn? And the truth is, Marty says like, look, lots of women use pornography. 
lots of men have big issues with it that in ways that it might be harmful to them because they're misusing it or, or, or being confused by it. But he says, as a therapist, and I know this from my own life, the most common thing he gets is a couple coming in where the woman is desperately upset about the man's porn use. And he wrote this book. And I mean, I love the conversation I had with Marty. I love talking with Marty. Um, but I got to tell you, when I was done the conversation, I said to him, I said, yes, I, we just didn't get it all in. And he said, that's why I wrote the book. And the truth is, is, is if this conversation does nothing more than get you to check out this book, you will be glad, especially if you're in a relationship um, in which pornography is a sticking point or a, point, a bone of contention. It is one of the most commonsensical. I mean, just... He's down to earth on the one hand, he's thought provoking. And, and weirdly enough, he's really entertaining. And I think you'll find that in this conversation, but I think the book itself is the same way. So anyway, Marty's been everywhere. He's, you know, he's been in the New Yorker, the New York Times, NPR, The Daily Show. I mean, he's been on Dan Savage's show. He's been on 2020. I mean, he's been everywhere. And, uh, and I was just so grateful that he was willing to come on the show and talk with me. And so what we're gonna talk about is kind of how pornography messes with uh, relationships. And in the end, I mean, I think at the end of the conversation, I came to the conclusion like, gosh, I we really can't talk about pornography until we learn how to talk about sex. And Marty was like, yeah, nobody knows how to talk about sex. Or he didn't say nobody, but he said, that's a real struggle for people. And I was like, you gotta come back and talk to me again. And he said, I will come back and talk to you again. And after you hear this conversation, you're gonna understand why I wanna have him come back and talk to me again. I love this guy. And I think you're gonna really um, be interested in this conversation we have about pornography um, and about the weird ways in which it affects all of us um, one way or the other. All right, so this is me and Marty Klein. I hope you dig it. I sure did. Catch you on the other side. And yes, I have an Ingersoll quote. You're, you're out there, you're sitting in Palo Alto right now? I'm in lovely Palo Alto, California, the heart of Silicon Valley. Which we're, we're, we're so you're not only in the, you're not only in the, in the place where porn is consumed, you're in a place where it is pumped into the wider world. I guess that's true. Yeah. I mean, or at least the, at least the algorithms that are used to decide which porn I get exposed to are, Correct. are created Correct. there. Correct. Correct. Just down the street. So like so in a, in a, in a sense like that's kind of where i want to start cuz i was i was on a walk with my son-in-law uh yesterday and we were talking about pornography as one does i was talking to him about porn panic i you know i was thinking about your your book and i was thinking about like this idea that there was almost like a particular year where all of a sudden porn that had when i was growing up was so hard to get oh my gosh like like if you found a Playboy magazine in, in somebody's trash can, you like spirited it home under your shirt and you were so happy for six months. Um, but then at some point it all became completely accessible. When, when was that? Yes, that was in the year 2000. Uh, in the year 2000, um, the internet uh, became carried uh, through broadband uh, instead of dial-up modem. And uh, suddenly... 
suddenly um, the, the download speeds were faster and the quality of pictures was better and you were able to have uh, real-time commercial transactions. And of course, it's porn that built the internet. It's uh, uh, people, um, people who wanted to use the internet for uh, the use of porn who actually invested the money. And uh, that's a slightly different question. But so it was around the year 2000 when broadband brought um, high speed, high quality, free uh, pornography into everybody's home and office. And that's when uh, I started to see a difference in my clinical practice where a lot more people talking about it and uh, complaining about it or being thrilled about it. I was just going to say, so you were already practicing at that point, and all of a sudden you had couples coming in right, with, complaining that this was a huge issue in their marriage. Right. I started practicing in 1980, so I had been in private practice for 20 years. I had already done 20,000 sessions when broadband brought porn into everybody's home. And so it's been 19 years since then. So roughly half my practice was before broadband uh, and porn and half since. And you can really see a difference because, um, I mean, people's use of computers and smartphones and everything has changed so dramatically since uh, the year 2000. Now, now was, was that the beginning of what you would call porn panic? Well, yes and no. Um, the I, I coined the term porn panic uh, simply as a way to talk about the moral panic around pornography that is so heated up right now. And, you know, there's been porn for as long as there's been people. And, and for as long as there's been porn, there's been people who have consumed it and people who have, um, who have been dismayed by it. Um, back in the 1950s, when... Uh, when magazines like Playboy uh, came out and when there were uh, reel-to-reel um, little eight-millimeter movies that people could show in their own homes. You had, have, you had a projector and all that. But uh, in the 1950s, when people started to have access to pornography in a more, um, on a more mass basis, there was a lot of concern about that, uh, primarily among religious people and primarily among, uh, I was one of them. Yeah. Primarily. Thank you. Pri primarily among, uh, people who saw it as a moral issue. So in a sense, porn panic goes back to the fifties, but, but nowadays there are so many other people lined up, uh, with an opinion about how horrible pornography is all the way from, um, all the way from people who are concerned about trafficking to people who are concerned about divorce. So porn panic really is in full flower now. And, and it really kicked into gear uh, in 2000. You know, it's funny. It's because I, I was, I was like a religious leader in the year 2000 um, running this organization that worked with young people. And, and, and what I remember was even before 2000, the real, like the beginning, the, the thin edge of the wedge was, when it started to be that you could order porn in your hotel room. Right. When you were, when you're on the road. Right. And we were all, I, I remember, you know, listening to other, other religious leaders and were like, who can withstand that? Like, you know, if there's freely available porn and there's no, like, you don't have to go up to the counter and be embarrassed, you know, by asking for a Plenthouse magazine, like we're all doomed. And, and there was this sense in which at that point, it was all about the morality of it. Like 
it's so mm-hmm. wrong to consume porn. Like it's there's lust in your heart and 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 it's all about that. But I feel like in the last number of years, and that was why when I read your book, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what it is, is that the argument shifted from being it's morally wrong to consume this stuff to it's a public health hazard. Like it destroys marriages. It, it ruins the brains of young people. Um, it, you know, young, young men will no longer be able to get erections because they've seen so much porn. Like there was a whole, there, there's been a shift in the argument, right? Yes, that's exactly right. There's been a shift in the argument. Uh, lust itself, uh, which had a very bad name in the 50s uh, and 60s, by the end of the 60s, lust did not have such a bad name anymore. The sexual revolution really challenge that narrative. And uh, after 1973 with Roe v. Wade, the people in the religious community and on the uh, political right, they uh, they realized that they were going to have to shift uh, their opposition to pornography away from demonizing lust itself to something else. And that, and that public health crisis narrative, that public danger narrative, really um, became the focus. And and the important thing about that is that when the anti-porn narrative was primarily about morality, there were a limited number of people who could talk in that language. There were a limited number of people who were willing to say, um, let's talk about morality. But once the anti-porn story was framed in terms of public health, it allowed a lot more people to claim that they were stakeholders. It allowed a lot more people to say, um, I'm concerned about this um, because of, of, say, sex trafficking or because of domestic violence or because of child molestation or because of divorce or because of uh, sexually transmitted diseases. I mean, pretty much anybody who could claim that there was a link between porn use and whatever their um, anti-sex activism was, they became a stakeholder. And so even though, even though there was no link, even though there's no link between pornography and say uh, uh, sex trafficking, people who are activists against sex trafficking, they now have a seat at the public policy table in opposing pornography. And it's the same thing with a lot of other issues like like child porn, for example. Um, there's absolutely no link between people who consume adult porn and people who consume child porn. Just like there's no link between people who create adult porn and people who create child porn. But because of this public health narrative, people who are against child porn uh, very actively, they get to say, and we're against um, and we're against adult porn because it's a slippery slope and it's a gateway drug. And uh, and there are people in government who are paying attention to those people. Okay, so like you and I, we're relationship people. You know, I mean, you are you are well, a therapist. You are. Act- <laughs> Come on. You, 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 I mean, 40,000 hours. Who you been talking to? We're relationship people. And, and what's interesting is like my, the, one of the groups of people I talk with the most are deconverted Christians. And sometimes they're deconverted Christians where one member of a couple has left the faith and is trying to figure out how to live a good life as a secular person and their spouse is still in it. And so th- these are people for whom pornography often becomes a the wedge issue. It's a huge wedge issue. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah. And, and sometimes I think it's, it's also like it's, um, it's a clearinghouse issue. Like 
there all there are lots of real things for them to talk about, but it all gets subsumed under he's using porn and I don't like it. Right. And I guess my question is like after 2000, did you feel like the couples that came to you, like did pornography, am I right about that? That pornography became kind of an easy, like, like an easy thing to blame for the problems in our marriage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of the things about, uh, about broadband is that um, broadband was available wherever you had a computer and where, and eventually now wherever you have a phone. So it's not like you have to go to a special place to use porn anymore. It's not like you have to demarcate um, this a special time that I'm going to use porn. It's, it's physically, it's literally everywhere in your house. It's everywhere that, um, that there's Wi-Fi. It's everywhere that you have uh, right. a T1 line. So, um, so it, it, it really became a fact of everybody's life. And for some people that, that was just unacceptable. And, uh, and so what, what I've been seeing in the last 20 years is couples where uh, one person says, I, I don't want this phenomenon in my house. I don't want this phenomenon in your life because if it's in your life, it's in my life. And I don't want this in my life. And, uh, you know, for people who, who look at pornography as way more than it really is for people who look at, um, for people who look at their partner as suddenly it's, it's not Joe who happens to use porn. It's Joe, the porn user. Uh, Oh, the porn addict. Or the porn addict. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a really difficult issue for couples. And, 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 you know, I, I see couples come in and you would never know that the planet is melting. You know, you would, you would never know that there are 20 million Americans who are starving. You would, you would never know that we're facing these massive social issues and biochemical issues and global issues. And you, you'd never know that humanity is facing these big challenges uh, because we've got somebody who says, I don't want my husband jacking off looking at somebody else's titties. And hey, but uh, you know, the, like, with all due respect, for many of the women that I talk to, they are absolutely convinced. They're not making this up. They're convinced that their husband masturbating to pornography is the moral equivalent of him having an affair. Like he is I sexually know, I know. I know. He is sexually involved with another person. I know. And I so know. so if that's what it really is, and if that's what I'm convinced that it is, believe me, the, the planet can be melting and everything. If my wife is having an affair, that's all I care about right now. Well, yes. And everybody's responsible for whatever stories they tell themselves to help them understand the world. So let's let's say that you have a couple and they and they wanted they wanted a son and they really, really, really wanted a son. And so they they conceive. She gets pregnant. They have a daughter and they're a little bit disappointed, but okay, life goes on. But let's say that one of them tells themselves that this is a sign of God's disapproval. Or let's say that one of them tells themselves, this is a sign that I'm not um, adequate as a man. My sperm wasn't able to create a son. People are responsible for whatever narrative they tell themselves to help them understand the world that they live in. But that's ridiculous. Nobody tells themselves that narrative. Somebody else tells you that narrative. No, no, no. I grew up in a narrative. Somebody else tells you that narrative. Your mother tells it to you. Your father tells it to you. Sure. 
Sure, and then you take it, it on. And everybody's responsible for figuring out what narratives they're going to carry forward and live the rest of their lives with. I mean, I, I was brought up in a home, um, a very loving and gentle home where uh, women didn't work. Women stayed home and they took care of the children. And, you know, when I was 10 years old, that seemed like really normal to me. And when I was 14 years old, that seemed really normal to me. Eventually, I was exposed to other ideas and I started to think, hmm, maybe this idea that women should be limited to the home instead of being out in the world alongside of men, maybe I want to reevaluate that idea. And so every, everybody, everybody goes through adolescence, everybody goes through young adulthood, and everybody decides which of the stories that they believed for the first 15 or 20 years of their lives, which of those stories they're going to, they're going to keep and, and, and make their own and which of those stories they're going to modify or even let go of. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it, what's funny is, is that when I think about the pain that some of the women that I know are in on it's this, terrible. Pain, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's, 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 re- and it's, it's real pain. Like it, it may be a false narrative, but, but it's pain real pain. Is, and it reminds me a lot of, you know, I, abortion uh, within the communities that I was growing up in, there was this notion that like, if you had an abortion, you would be traumatized. You would always be haunted by that abortion for the rest of your life. And that, that ache would kill, would, would carry on. And it was, and what was funny is, is that I really believed that because the women that I heard talking about abortions they had had 20 years ago, all reported that. Right. But like what I learned was, is that if women were like, I thought it was a medical reality. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, and then I started meeting people from other cultures and other families that it wasn't so stigmatized. And they were like, it, it, it didn't bother, it didn't carry with them at all. And I realized like, oh, the thing that causes the trauma isn't the abortion. It's, it's having the, an abortion in a context of a, of a culture that's, that stigmatizes it. Right. And I feel like it's the same thing with this porn. Well, the, uh, one of the differences between abortion and porn is that a person can argue that with abortion, there's a third being involved. With, with porn, um, people can argue that the whole community is involved. But the truth is uh, that really it's the person who's using it where the actual experience is. And then everybody around them gets to decide what is the meaning of that in their own life. So. For some people, for some women, for example, they say the fact that my husband looks at porn, it's a reflection of my adequacy or my desirability. That's a choice that every woman has to make for herself. In the same way that when we walk down the street and we see people, we have to decide what is the meaning of their behavior for us. When we see when we see a, a young a young couple holding hands or smooching as they walk down the street, we have to decide. Does that mean that I'm old and no longer attractive? Everybody has to decide that. Every time you go to the airport, every time you go to the supermarket, every time you walk down the street, when you look, if you're if you're a grown-up adult in your 30s or 40s or older, you have to decide what are the implications for me as a sexual being that I'm not like those 22-year-olds who are young and beautiful and uh, and they can't keep their hands off each other. So so. What what people are forgetting um, in this porn debate is that everybody's responsible for whatever stories they tell themselves about the meaning of porn. What the anti-porn forces are doing is they're saying that these meanings live in the porn. And that's absolutely false. 
It's um, and it really does a disservice to people. It really uh, limits people's options for dealing with this phenomenon. Well, let me ask you a question because I, I read a book a couple of years ago by Esther Perel, who mm-hmm. I know you know. Yeah. And um, and one of the things that Esther Perel said that really stuck with me was that you know variety is is by its very nature titillating. Like oh, that no matter how attractive and in love you are with your partner, an, the other. Mm-hmm. is 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 somehow forbidden is somehow exotic it, and, and, and so so no matter how attractive you are your partner still the, the person walking down the street might not even be as attractive as you but they have an advantage that you can't possibly match of and that's they're different of course of course and so one of the que- you know and and so one of the interesting things is i remember when my wife and i stopped pretending that we weren't attracted to or interested in other people. Like I remember like sort of being shocked. I thought that my wife was hardwired to only find me attractive and no other man. Uh-huh. Um, because because that was the mythology that we were told was the right thing to do. And she was a good enough actor that I bought it. Uh-huh. And I remember when we started having a more honest conversation. And, and one of the things that she said to me was, if, if the day you're not interested in other women, I'm in big trouble because what that mean will mean is you're not, if you're not interested in women in general, then you're not going to be interested in me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, I would go way, way further than that. Um, it's not only around sexuality that the human brain craves novelty. It's around everything. The, the reason that human beings are able to use their imagination to build the golden gate bridge or to create, um, um, Handel's Messiah, the reason we're able to use our imagination that way is because the human brain is constantly searching for novelty. And, and that's true, not just with sex, it's with everything. I, I remember many years ago giving a lecture um, in, in Cape Cod. I, w- I was there for a week giving a lecture every day for a week, and it was raining every day. So I went to a video store. In those days, there were video stores. I went to a video store, and they had all these great old movies. I love old movies. So they had all these great old movies, like Casablanca and the Maltese Falcon and Day at the Races and Lawrence of Arabia. Great, great, great. What do I do? Do I say, oh, I'm going to get all my old favorites because I know for an absolute fact I'm going to enjoy these. Every time I watch Casablanca, I enjoy it. So how about if I just get all these old movies that I know are guaranteed a guaranteed hit? But no, that's not what human beings do. We get a couple of old hits, but then I think, hmm, what about this movie? I've never seen this one. What about this movie? I've never even heard of this one. So look at that interesting behavior where people will actually gamble. People will say, I'm going to, I'm going to choose not the old reliable favorite that I know will give me satisfaction in favor of some possibility of novelty where I'm going to get not only the satisfaction of the movie, but the satisfaction of the novelty also. So sex is just a special case of that. It's just one example of that. And, um, to deny that about sexuality is to deny that about the human brain. The thing about sex, as opposed to movies or whatever it is, is that we live in a society that has decided that there are going to be special rules about sex as opposed to other things. 
Okay, so there are special and, rules. And, and you know, the special rule about sex that says that my wife and I will be faithful to each other, like I know that's a human construct. I know monogamy is like an invention, right? Right. But in some ways that invention provides me with a certain kind of security of that course. I appreciate. Of course, of course. And, and I and I give up some novelty. That's right. But 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 I know that like on some level, since I, I have to find a way to sort of bring in some novelty. And so sometimes that means like, Hey, how about I pretend I'm a pilot right. and you pretend you're a, you know, a, a, a businesswoman getting on the flight and, you know, and we, but the other thing is, I think sometimes pornography is that novelty where you go like, I'm going to look at somebody else. Cause that's going to, that's going to stimulate my sexuality, the novelty side of it. But then like, I'm going to turn that off and come in and talk to you and I'm, I'm stimulated by the other, but I'm committed to you. Right. So, so that's an arrangement that a lot of people make and it works quite well. Um, where, where that, where that system breaks down is the way that people define fidelity. So if you define fidelity as, um, I'm not going to get revved up by some woman that I saw in the, saw in the supermarket, then you can't take advantage of the arrangement that you just described. Now for, for right. that matter, for that matter, somebody could decide that you and your and your wife playing the I'm the pilot, you're the flight attendant game. Somebody could say that that's infidelity, even even though it's with your own partner. It's that you're pretending that uh, you're being uh, somebody else. Or, or So there are ways to um, to take advantage of the artificial creation of novelty inside what you consider to be fidelity. On the other hand, Everybody has their own definition of fidelity. So some people could say, I, I don't want to play that game because that makes me feel like you're not really with me. Or, or, or I think it's immoral. You know, I think that, you know, that's, that's not, that that's not part of our contract. So. But when, when I, th there, you just said it, you just said it. Cause when I was reading your book, that was the thing that freaked me out is I realized that one of the things that you were saying is, is that a lot of times in a relationship, at one point, a woman will stamp her foot and say, there will be no pornography in this, in this household. There will be like, you will not see porn anymore or else like we're done or else you, you will not touch me. And, and, and you're like, there was no contract made. Right. Like they didn't, that like how many couples explicitly discuss the use of pornography in their, in their relationship before they get married? And the answer is zero. The answer is zero. And so what happens is people are going along. The guy's looking at porn in private. She doesn't she doesn't know or she chooses not to know. And then one day she finds out and she says, oh, look at this thing that you're doing. That's terrible. It's a violation of our contract. You have to stop. And he says, wait, wait, wait. What contract are we talking about here? And she says, well, um, every reasonable woman feels the same way that I do, or everybody who's a God-fearing Christian feels the way that I do, or whatever, whatever moral high ground that woman wants to take, she, at that point, is attempting to enforce a contract that doesn't exist. It would, it would be as if um, somebody came to my office every Tuesday for therapy, and you know they, they come in wearing green socks, and they say, hey, I'm insulted that you're wearing green socks. And they say, wait, 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 we never talked about that ahead of time. And I say, well, everybody knows that green socks are disrespectful. So, so you're right that um, couples generally don't have a contract, not only about porn, but about masturbation for that matter. 
You know, most couples don't say before they get married, oh, and by the way, after we get married, I'm still going to masturbate, right? Or, oh, after we get married, um, you can still use your vibrator whenever you want to or, or, or whatever it is. Most couples don't talk about that. But then when, they, when, when whatever has been private behavior is exposed, uh, somebody discovers the other person's vibrator or somebody discovers the other person's been looking at porn or whatever it is, then people get huffy and say, wait, 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 that is unacceptable and you have to stop doing that. And the other person says, wait, 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 what, what just happened here? Well, yeah, and, and I think especially a lot of times later on in a relationship when communication issues, you know, because like what, when communication issues start to be an issue or when the couple isn't having as much sex as they once were, then the idea is, is listen, I don't want you wasting any of your sexual energy on jacking off to porn or with your vibrator. I want you to bring all that energy to me. Like, like we don't, right. we have, we have a, we, we, like, it's like, it's, it's like, it's a zero sum and, and we don't, we can't spare that. That's, I call that the ice cream broccoli paradigm. That's like you say to somebody, I want, I, I, we need to get you to eat more. We need to get you to eat more broccoli. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to take away your ice cream. And that doesn't work. It does not work. The, the, the reason that people don't have sex with their partners is not because they're using up their sexual interest in porn. Because most of the time, I mean, I, I guess ever, occasionally somebody's ever, obsessive compulsive. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, if somebody has a diagnosable mental disorder, that's another question. But we're talking about people who are not um, diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder or bipolar disorder or something like that. But for most people, for most people, um, porn actually cannot compete with enjoyable partner sex. It can compete with lousy partner sex. It can compete with partner sex that's unsatisfying, that's embarrassing, that's frustrating, right. that's annoying, that's physically painful. So, but so can bowling. That's true too. That's true too. Um, but the anything I, can compete with that kind of sex. Sure, anything. You're absolutely right. So when people say um, you have a limited amount of sexual energy and I don't want you using it with porn, the idea that, well, if you can masturbate with porn, you'll settle for me. First of all, that's a terrible basis for a sexual relationship. And second of all, it's demonstrably not true. If, if people were willing to have mediocre sex, they wouldn't turn to porn. But when people turn away from sex with their partners, there's invariably good reasons, some of which have to do with the sex and some of which have nothing to do with the sex, some of which have to don't, do. Don't you think it, yeah, yeah. Does, it doesn't seem to work almost in the reverse that it's almost like pornography oftentimes serves as an appetite stimulant? Of course, of course, of course. You know, there, there's a reason that we, that we have this institution in, in eating called the appetizer. The appetizer, um, actually wets our appetite. The, ap the appetizer uh -huh. doesn't uh -huh. satisfy our appetite. The, appetite dri the appetizer drives our appetite. And so the same thing is true with sexuality. And in fact, what we know, what we know um, in the early stages of, of, of a couple, people will do things like they will text each other, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about having sex with you this weekend, or people will 
um, leave leave somebody a, a voicemail that says you'll you'll never believe which underwear I'm wearing right now, or you know stuff like that. Or people will touch each other in the kitchen in the morning when they know that they're not going to have sex. And those are little appetizers. Those are little things that um, keep the eroticism going. And yeah. in a, in a sexually healthy couple, porn, masturbating forget about porn one way or another, but masturbating serves that same appetizer function. Uh, but in relationships where the sexuality has broken down, um, there are no appetizers. You know, when the sexuality is broken down, uh, people are not continually um, pinching that little erotic energy. And, and, and so it, it becomes real difficult to launch any given sexual encounter. Uh, because uh, the, you're starting from a cold engine, basically. You know, there's no there's no eroticism in the atmosphere. The bodies don't know each other on some sort of unconscious level. So, so two two things that come to my mind right now. I mean, one is you're saying a lot of times the porn conversation is really a con- like there's really a, an, an another issue at stake. Absolutely. And I'm wondering, like, what do you think is what do you think is the other issue that's most often at stake when people are talking about porn? Well, you know, being a grown up is complicated, and the older we get, the more complicated it is to be a grown up. And the older we get, the more reminders we see all around us that we are in fact getting old. And you know, you you marry um a young man or a young woman, or you couple up with a young man or a young woman, and one day you wake up and this young man or young woman looks exactly like your mother did when you were 12 years old. (laughs) Or even worse, looks exactly like your father did when you were 30 years old. So um, one thing that young people aren't quite tuned into is that as we go through the life cycle, we're continually confronted with evidence of our own aging and our own mortality. And everybody has to figure out how to deal with that. Some people deal with that through religion or spirituality, and some people deal with that with overwork, and some people deal with that with hedonism, and some people deal with that uh, by by mastering things like playing the tuba or or gardening or whatever it is. So everybody has to deal with um, the fact that their own bodies are getting older, that they're facing uh, uh, mortality and so on. And when you get up, when you get up one morning and you're 50 years old, you can't tell yourself, well, maybe tomorrow I'll wake up and I'll be 35. You can't tell yourself that. (laughs) And and when you wake up and you're 50 years old and you simply can't play singles tennis anymore because your legs won't do it anymore, you can't tell yourself, well, maybe next year I'll be able to play singles. It just doesn't work that way. So, so one one of the projects that goes on in long-term couples is how how are the individuals dealing with getting older how are the individuals dealing with um becoming less physically able to do things exactly the way they want them to and not everybody handles that gracefully and one of the things that inevitably happens in long-term couples is that uh, the, the frequency of the sex goes way down. The quality of the sex changes dramatically and not everybody handles that gracefully. And as you know, there are a jillion couples who do not want to talk about the decline in the quality of their sex life. In my experience as a therapist, 
people would rather walk through fire than talk about that. And well, I, I know a lot of people that would rather let it go. They're like, well, that's what they I, do. I, I, that's what they I'd do. rather just let sex go than actually have to talk about it. Right. And that, that works fine as long as both people are willing to do that and they're willing to do it quietly. And that, and, and so a couple will go along not talking about it and they could be very intimate in a lot of other ways. They have their grandchildren, they have their pets, they have their uh, garden or whatever it is. That can work just fine as long as both people have let it go quietly and they have other ways of nourishing themselves and they have other ways that the couple nourishes itself. However, when one person masturbates to porn and the other person becomes aware of that, suddenly that arrangement that we don't talk about it, that arrangement has been violated. The, the, the person who's not masturbating to porn feels oh, look, you violated our don't ask, don't tell kind of agreement. And then um, the couple has to figure out what to do about that. And that's when the, the partner may get angry and say, you know, we were going along having no sex or very little sex. And it may not have been my first choice, but it was working fine. And now you're throwing this masturbating to porn thing in my face. And now I can't just pretend that sex doesn't exist in this world anymore. And I understand that people are really angry about that. So, so I feel like when I was reading the book, I saw a number of situations where I thought you were talking about conversations you had had with people and particularly with couples. And I thought, oh my gosh, like he switched, he, he turned the conversation, he switched the energy. Like they were talking about pornography in this one way. And he got them talking about it, like you just said, talking about it in terms of, well, wait a second, what's the contract here? Or what's the collaboration here? Or what's the real issue underlying? Most, most of the people that I know that struggle with pornography in their relationships are never going to go see a therapist. Of course. So, so, so my question is, what, what would you say is an important tool if somebody's trying to figure out how to change the conversation about pornography in their own relationship? Like how, how do you turn it? Well, empathy is really important here. Um, uh, let's see, you're in Cincinnati. So uh, uh, maybe you, re you remember that old baseball team, the big red machine, right? Back in the night, <laughs> right back yeah. in the 1970s, Pete Rose and Tony Perez and Joe Morgan and Johnny Bench. So let's say that um, the Cincinnati Reds was a really important part of your life growing up and you were really close with your dad. Um, I'm just making up a story here. You're really close with your dad because he loved the Cincinnati Reds too. And so this is a real meaningful thing in your life. And then um, you meet a woman and she's a great woman and you're in a couple. It doesn't matter if you get married or not. And um, she says to you, uh, you know, uh, I'm now making up the story. You know, uh, I used to have a brother, but he got killed going to... Uh, Riverfront Stadium or whatever the stadium was back in the 70s. He got killed uh, in a car accident going to the stadium. And ever since, you know, um, I can't stand, I just can't stand to even hear the word baseball. Whoa. What are these? So she might say, therefore, you have to promise you're never going to say the word baseball ever again. And that would be real, real painful for you. And you might say, look, baseball is a really normal thing in life. And um, you're just going to have to get over. It. You're just going to have to deal with it. That would not be very helpful approach, right? What you would want to do is you would want to say to her, oh, let me demonstrate how much I care about your pain about me watching baseball. 
I'm not going to judge it right now. I'm not going to try and change your mind right now. I'm going to let you know that I'm aware of how painful the subject is for you. And I'm going to let you know how much I care about this subject uh, being so painful for you. When a person does that enough, it allows the other person to exhale and to actually begin to listen and, in fact, even heal themselves a little bit. So, so wait, instead of instead of saying baseball's normal, you're wrong, right. saying like, wow, right. I can really see why you hate the word baseball. Man, I, I can really see how that must feel to you. Right. And in fact, you don't even have to say, I can see why it's so painful for you. It starts with, I can see that you're in pain. That's the most okay. fundamental yeah. thing that you can say to somebody. Yeah. You can even say, I don't understand why, but it's obvious to me that the word baseball or the smell of peaches or the color green or whatever it is, I'm going to believe you when you say, sweetheart, I'm going to believe you that X is real painful for you. And I'm not going to try and change your I'm mind sorry. right now. And I'm not going to try and um, convince you that you're wrong for being in pain about what you're in pain about. The very first thing is I'm going to bear witness. You know, the very first thing is I'm going to make room in my life for the fact that you're in pain about this. That's the very wow. first thing where you establish, okay. um, I'm going to open my arms and create a container. Um, and your, your pain has room in that container. That's the first thing. The second thing may be, okay, let me understand it. And then the third thing way down the road, you know, is going to be, okay, now what are we going to do about this? But you can't get to what are we going to do about this? What sort of collaborative um, solutions are we going to investigate? Uh, we can't get to that until each person feels like their feelings are validated and that the other person wow. says, boy, your feelings are inconvenient for me, but I have plenty of room for them. Or boy, your feelings are confusing to me, but um, there's room in this relationship for your feelings. That's the very first thing. Because I mean, I'm thinking about porn and how often is it, it does the woman, if, if you say to her, wow, you know, tell me about that pain or I, I see that you're in pain and just, you know, and they talk about it and she's like, yeah, I can't compete with those women. My body isn't as good as their bodies are. Step like, one is, oh, you think you have to compete with this stuff. No wonder you're in pain. Oh, you poor thing. Come here. Let me give you a hug. I see. Okay. Oh, you feel you have to compete with this. Now, at the end of the day, as we talked about before, everybody has to figure out how to live in a world that's filled with people who are more attractive than you, have more money than you do. Their kids are more successful than your kids. They have more health than you do, right? Everybody has to figure out. I mean, I live in Silicon Valley, right? It's, it rains money here every day. You know, it rains money. You, you know, I bicycle past, when I bicycle three times a week, I bicycle past the offices of Facebook, Google, Yahoo, Groupon, and everybody's walking around there millionaire, right? And everybody comes into my office and they say, well, yeah, I work all the time, but I have 80 gajillion shares of Apple stock. So I have to figure out how to be content in a world where all the people around me have more money than I do. And I have to learn how to be content in a world where the people around me are younger and more attractive and they're more healthy. They're healthy enough to play singles tennis. I used to right, do that. Right. I can't do that anymore because I hurt my knee. So sex is only one of those arenas where everybody has to figure out how do I thrive in a world 
where other people have more of what I value than I do. And I'm never going to have, I'm never going to be the person in the world who has the most amount of money or the, the most physical beauty or the best sex or whatever it is. Everybody has to figure out how to thrive with that. And so when someone says, I compare myself to the women in porn um, and I and I, I feel lacking, I feel inadequate, I feel insecure, whatever it is, the, the answer is not, oh, honey, don't worry, I don't want a blowjob like you see in porn. No, no, no. The answer to that is, yeah, you aren't as physically attractive as you might like. I wonder what we're going to do about that. Yeah. Um, you um, don't have as big a chest as the woman next door. I wonder what we're going to do about that. Yeah, you don't have wrinkle-free skin like Scarlett Johansson does. I wonder what we're going to do about that. Every grown-up faces that challenge. And not just about sex, about a lot of things. And so I think that it's a fool's errand for anybody to try and compete with any image they say they see in the media. I think it's a fool errand for anybody to try and be as manly as John Wayne. I think it's a fool's errand for anybody to try and, and give a blowjob like you see in porn. That's just a fool's errand. Um, it's a fool's errand to try and be as rich as Warren Buffett. It's a fool's errand. And um, it's, it's guaranteed but, but I, misery. I feel, like, I feel like that's true. But I also feel like porn is a special case. Nah. Because... Nah. No, let me, let me say why. Because in the same way that I feel like um, a, a Arnold Schwarzenegger movie is a special case because, or, or, or a superhero movie, like people don't really fly. Like those are special effects. Right. The, 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 people's bodies aren't that jacked. And porn and, is exactly and the sense, same way. You're making my point for Yeah, me. porn is exactly the same. Right. Nobody works like that. No, women right. don't, women's, right. women's sexual responses don't work that way. You know, I feel like, I mean, that's a whole other conversation about how young people can, can be poorly educated about sexuality if the only sexual education they get is watching pornography because it's a fantasy. Right. And, and I think most people know that, but I feel like the women don't know that. So the solution to that is not to take away all the porn in the world. The solution to that is to enhance everybody's porn literacy. And this is where we say, oh, in Marty's new book, His Porn, Her Pain, there's a great chapter on porn literacy and why it's important and how there's even a little quiz, how to measure yourself or how to measure your, your kids' ideas about porn. It's really important, just like it's important that people understand that you don't take flying lessons from superhero movies and you don't take car racing lessons from uh, NASCAR. Uh, you don't take sex lessons from porn and you don't think to yourself, that's the standard that you have to achieve or aspire to. Of course, it's tough because that would require you to actually have a conversation with your children about pornography. About sex. That's right. No, about sex. No, about first about sex. Because if you say to children, I say this all the time, you don't want the first conversation with your kids about sex to be about porn. When you say to your kids, listen, there's a lot about porn that's problematic. And the main thing I want you to know is that real sex is not like porn sex. Any reasonable kid is going to say, oh, porn's not like real sex. I thought it was. Okay, what's real sex like? And, and if a parent doesn't have a good answer for that, they're in trouble, right? So the first thing you want to do is you want to have 47 conversations with your kids about sex. You want to have a vocabulary. You want to uh, have the idea that we talk about sex in this house the way we talk about other things. And then you get to have the porn conversation. Yeah, that's, that's a whole other conversation, isn't it? <laughs> yes.
I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. Like, I yes. think that yes. most parents, not just parents, but I would say that most couples that I talk to are better at having sex than they are at talking to each other about sex. Well, we can agree that most couples don't talk about sex very much and they don't talk about it very effectively. We could definitely agree on that. I I know I'm up against your time. And so, but like, I I feel like that's a podcast that probably would be like, that's a conversation. And and maybe, maybe you're like, I've already written all this stuff down. You can just find it in this (laughs) book or that book. But do, do you know what I mean? Like people just don't know how to talk about sex. Very true. Very true. Partly because people think they need a special way to do that. And you don't need a special way to do that. If people would talk about sex the way they talk about eating and cooking and food, then they'd be in much better shape. But it's hard to get, for for a lot of people, it's hard to get there. I believe me, I know that and I'm sympathetic, but um, it's it's such a simple rule of thumb and it's so easy to observe the extent to which you're, you're doing that or not doing that. Man, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like I, I feel like I, I missed something important here. Um, <laughs> are you frustrated with me? Uh, you, you can't, you can't say everything meaningful about sex in just one hour. I think that we have investigated one tiny little corner of human sexuality and human relationships. And we, have, we should be grateful for our time together and be glad that we have not exhausted such an important topic. Spoken like a true humanist. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks for talking with me. Well, um, I'm, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I'm sure that we'll be having more conversations like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to come back at you. Okay. Thanks a lot, man. All right, that was me and Marty Klein. And you see what I mean when I say I I really like that guy? He's so smart and he's so thoughtful on this subject. And like I said, I I didn't even feel like in this conversation, I was, I I felt like I was inadequate as a conversation partner, partner to kind of draw out of him all the stuff that I found in this book. I've read the book twice myself. And so I'm just gonna steer you towards it. Um, and obviously at the end of the show, you you can find all the ways to connect with Marty, um, on, uh, in, in, in the show notes and don't worry, he'll be back. He promised me, he says, I'm going to come back. I'm going to talk to you more. I think what you're doing is important. He likes the conversation that we're having and, 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 you know, he, like me just thinks we need to change the whole tenor of the conversation about sexuality in our society, because a lot of people are struggling in their relationships, not, not because the sex has to be bad or it is bad, but because they just don't know a constructive way of talking about it. And I think Marty has a handle on that. And so anyway, he'll be back. I'll be back. But before I get back, I'm going to read you an Ingersoll quote. And I just want to remind you that back in Ingersoll's day, he was not known as the great humanist. Humanism wasn't a big word back then. Uh, He was known as the great agnostic. Um, But when he would describe what he was into, he would call it secularism. I think that when every time I read him writing about secularism, I go, you're talking about humanism. 
And I think he would call himself a humanist now, but I'm gonna read you a quote where he's talking about secularism. And I just kind of want you to sort of in your mind go like, I think he means humanism, or at least Bart thinks he means humanism. And here's the quote. I take it for granted that everybody will admit that well-being is the only good. That is to say that it is impossible to conceive of anything of real value that does not tend either to preserve or to increase the happiness of some sentient being. Secularism, therefore, covers the entire territory. It fills the circumference of human knowledge and of human effort. It is, you may say, the religion of this world. But if there is another world, it is necessarily the religion of that as well. The great benefit of secularism is that it appeals to the reason of every man. And again, I'm gonna interrupt here. I think when Ingersoll says every man, I think he means every person. Um, but he writes in the language of his time and I'm, I'm loath to change it, although I'd really rather him say that it appeals to the reason of every person or every individual. I'll go on. It asks every man to think for himself. It does not threaten punishment if a man thinks, but it offers a reward for fear that he will not think. It does not say you will be damned in another world if you think, but it says you will be damned in this world if you do not think. Secularism preserves the manhood and the womanhood of all. It says to each human being, stand upon your own feet, count one, imagine for yourself, investigate, observe, think, express your opinion, stand by your judgment, unless you are convinced that you are wrong. And when you are convinced, you can maintain and preserve your manhood or womanhood only by admitting that you were wrong. It's good stuff, huh? I just think that the beauty of this is that last line. Stand upon your own two feet. Count one. Examine for yourself. Investigate, observe, and think. Express your opinion. Stand by your judgment unless you are convinced you are wrong. And when you are convinced, you can maintain and preserve your manhood or womanhood only by admitting that you were wrong. I think for this pornography conversation, that's a really good thing to remember is that a lot of us, you know, a lot of us have been wrong about this in our lives and there comes a time to be convinced and a time when we can preserve our humanity only by admitting that we were wrong. Anyway, it's been great. It's been great talking to Marty Klein. It's always great being with you. I'll see you next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. 
And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. You could be larger than life.